Why is the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed your answer to better health and wellness? It's proven quality sleep. Any more questions? Yes, I'm always freezing, and he overheats. It's temperature balancing, so you can sleep better together. But can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. So I'll have more energy for yoga. Yes, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Namaste. Namaste to you, too. And now, save up to $1,000 on the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed and adjustable base, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Are we recording? Are Is we? it on? Is it on? I think it's on. Great. Okay. <laughs> okay. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And today is part one of our two-part discussion of the fourth book in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. But before we can let you into the hallowed halls of our discussion, you must first pay a visit to the Sorting Chat. I just want to sneak in the fact that it was a really excruciating experience for me to listen to you guys have fun with the mini episode (laughs) without me, and I will never leave again. Well, you may have noticed on the recording schedule that I suggested, because I am also going to be doing some traveling, so I suggested that after we finish the two episodes for this book, you record another mini episode Mm -hmm. while I'm away in Montreal, so... And it's going to be so fun, and you are going to be so jealous, you won't even believe it. I promise I well, I have intense mofo all of the time. Mofo? FOMO. <laughs> I am an intense mofo all the time. I have intense FOMO all the time. <laughs> Sorry, I got those things mixed up. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, so let's launch back into um, our discussion about uh, Harry Potter and the wider wizarding world. All right, I'm going to start us off by pointing out that The thing that I found most exciting about this book was the fact that this is where we first get a sense that the wizarding world is larger than Hogwarts and like the greater London area. Mm -hmm. Um, We see the other wizarding schools and we find out, you know, these are the other wizarding schools in Europe, Mm -hmm. which implies right away that, of course, there are other wizarding schools beyond Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is introduced to us. And also we see Harry at the Quidditch World Cup, and we see him experiencing the wider world of wizards for the first time. Possibly also the wider world in general, because I don't imagine that the Dursleys have have exposed him to a whole heck of a lot of, like, cultural diversity. That's a really good point. Like, he's probably (laughs) barely ever left the shitty suburb that he grew up in. Mm -hmm. So not only is he you know, experiencing the interesting, you know, meeting wizards from around the world. He's meeting anybody from anywhere (laughs) else than the, like, white suburb he grew up in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, This is, I think, a really good example of the way that the books mirror Harry's experience with our experience as readers, because this is also the first book that, for me, felt very different. And Even though I knew that there were scary and dangerous aspects to this world previously, I didn't quite realize how unprepared I was for those until this book. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder, I I feel like that is maybe um, perhaps mirroring the experience that Harry is having entering Mm -hmm. into um, the wider wizarding world as he does. We don't, I think, 
realize how sheltered he is in the first three books, how really he's just experiencing the confines of his school, of Diagon Alley, of these spaces that are really sort of managed for him by authority figures. And it isn't until this book that you're sort of introduced to how fundamentally chaotic and overwhelming the larger mm-hmm. wizarding world is how hard it is to manage oh, yes. we'll talk about this later but what a struggle it must be for the ministry of magic to <laughs> maintain any kind of control mm-hmm. over these like totally chaotic subjects yeah. um i mean just the the image of these wizards trying to dress like muggles mm-hmm. and how bad they are at it yeah. says a lot to us about the fact that like this is a world saturated with the kind of chaos that you don't see in the really managed spaces that Harry has been in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We also get with this book, and we'll talk more about this when we uh, talk about potions class, but we also get a sense that even within that managed space, things are even more chaotic and out of control and out of Dumbledore's control than we had ever really imagined before. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the the journeys that Harry is going through with each subsequent book. We see that his authority figures, his sense of control, his belief in the ability of people to make the world orderly, make it make sense, it crumbles increasingly Mm -hmm. each book, right? Which is, I'm basically growing up. Where you go from being like, authority figures have control. School is a place where I'm safe. Mm -hmm. And then you you grow up and you're like, none of that is true. Nobody's safe ever and nobody knows what they're doing. Yeah, not even remotely. So there there are a handful of things that we encounter in this book, uh, especially at the beginning, that I think are really exciting and wonderful. One of my favorite things that we learn about is uh, the concept of the port key. I love that port keys are the kinds of things that muggles would just assume are trash and leave alone. So like a random boot in the middle of the of a field because now whenever i find myself seeing things that are sort of random and bizarre but don't actually make any sense for where they are but i'm not going to pick them up and move them <laughs> part of me is always thinking maybe it's a port key i better not touch it because i don't know where i'll end up my friend vanessa who doesn't listen to this podcast and probably <laughs> never will but I'm gonna name check her anyway <laughs> Um, refers to those as murder clues. So (laughs) whenever we're out somewhere and you see like a random just discarded boot or like a sock hanging from a tree branch, which just like happens sometimes, she just looks at it and it's like murder clue. (laughs) It's it's a much less whimsical way of looking at a discarded boot. (laughs) While we're sort of around the topic of port keys, uh, one of the things that I felt very emotional about this time reading through the book, Mm -hmm. and I think something that I had never actually noticed before even though i've read this book so many times when the weasleys and harry and hermione are meeting up with the diggeries to Mm -hmm. um to take the port key to the quidditch world cup amos diggory is being exceptionally idiotic in his um praising of his son and his son's uh quidditch win Mm -hmm. against harry and he says the most heartbreaking thing in the whole world which is um and i quote I said to him, I said, said, that'll be something to tell your grandchildren that will. You beat Harry Potter. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Commence Obliviate in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. But Cedric never will because he's going to (laughs) die. 
That really reminds me of a thing I saw on the internet, which I definitely only saw because somebody sent me the link because I'm not allowed to do research Mm -hmm. myself. No, you're not. But it was a quote from... Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Commence Obliviate in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Which which is the Weasley twin that dies. Whichever one dies, but it was a quote from him saying, like, yeah, I won't make people dress like that at my wedding. And somebody on Tumblr had just like repeated it like five times, just like in ever increasing font sizes. Oh, once you know who's not gonna make it, it's full of all of these incredibly tragic and ironic moments in a way that makes you realize, like, you knew exactly who you were going to kill off, didn't you? The whole time. The whole time. There's no way that J.K. Rowling did not know when she was writing this book and included that line about Cedric telling his grandchildren that he beat Harry fucking Potter at Quidditch. <laughs> There's no way she didn't know that he never would. She has, she has no no shits to spare about our feelings. She gives no, no fucks about no. our feelings. Um, okay, so there are also many moments in the just the the larger image of the wizards at the Quidditch World Cup that I really love. The tents delight me to mm-hmm. no end. Um, the way that when you borrow a tent from somebody else, you also borrow all of the furniture that is inside the tent yeah. and like the cat hair that's on that furniture <laughs> is just beautiful. The image of the wizards as unable to stop themselves from showing off when they're around each other. Yeah. I found both delightful and really interesting because it suggests that wizards live in some degree of isolation mm-hmm. from each other most yeah. of the time. There are not wizard cities. No. You no. can't have a sort of metropolitan wizarding community, which means wizards are either living in cities and hiding what they are or living in relatively isolated rural settings. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very weird social dynamic. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. That's that's why we learn in book three that Hogsmeade is quite special because it's, what is it? It's Britain's largest or um, all wizarding? Only? I can't remember if it's largest or only. Largest. largest. Yeah. Um, yeah, all wizard, all wizard community. And it's yeah. quite tiny. It has two pubs. Yeah. Two. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So like you can't be a sort of out urban wizard. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's, that's going to have a really distinct impact on what it is like to be a wizard. So I have a question for you. It's not connected to the questions that I'm going to ask you during final revisions because it just occurred to me right now. If we're thinking about the way that wizards live in isolation and the way that they have to underscore their lifestyles if they live in urban centers, my question then becomes... Is the Quidditch World Cup akin to a kind of enormous global pride parade? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways it is. Yeah, it's this really sort of like here is a relatively safe space where we can all be exactly what we are. And except that even in that space, they still have to, to some degree, hide Mm-hmm. Right? They're all in costume. It isn't until they're actually in the stadium that they can really celebrate themselves and really Mm -hmm. be sort of unabashedly what they are. Even in the campground, they're supposed to be hiding what they are and they're all doing a really shitty job. Yeah. Because they don't care, right? Because they're together in that moment. They're so full of 
excitement and freedom that mm-hmm. they don't actually care mm-hmm. about keeping up even the slightest appearances. Yeah. And they outnumber the people who they normally have to hide from mm-hmm. so entirely that they get to set the terms on mm-hmm. which they are or are not visible. So in previous episodes, we've had lengthy discussions about whether or not wizards wear trousers under the robes. And there's this really important additional piece of information in this book Mm -hmm. where we see a wizard in a uh, lady's nightgown. um, And he's being told that he needs to change into proper clothes because male Mm -hmm. muggles do not wear ladies' nightgowns. Um, Nobody should be wearing nightgowns during the day it's going to raise suspicion and his objection is that he likes to breathe down there Mm -hmm. this suggests to me that wizards are in fact not wearing any that robes are an article of clothing that does not constrict your genitals Mm -hmm. okay i totally agree with you and hear what you're saying but i wonder though if the fact that this wizard is so adamantly opposed to putting on trousers suggests that he is maybe a little bit more free with what is under his regular wizarding robes than the vast majority of wizards who have, you know, made the transition to trousers and various types of trouser-like objects. I mean, either way, that suggests that it's like trousers optional. Yeah, sure. That like, it implies that when he is wearing his robes, he doesn't look off for the wizards. right. Right? It's just that he's failing to, to blend in as a muggle. Mm-hmm. So when you ask if they wear trousers under, this is this is not taking into consideration that they may or may not be wearing, like, underpants, right? I'm assuming they're wearing underpants. Okay. This is why I'm differentiating between pants and trousers. Yeah, no, no, no. I think that that's, I think that that's fair. Okay. I do think that we should remember what Professor John Considine mentioned when you brought this issue up with him and and Dr. Sylvia Brown after Professor Sylvia Brown's broadest lecture. What was it? I think you remember. I, I mean, I just heard it from I you. I do. I remember this very well. It was wonderful. I was asking them the question um, because Dr. Considine is in fact British. And so I thought maybe he would have a little bit more insight into the question of mm-hmm. robes in the UK educational system. And he, he said, you know, at Schools like Oxford and Cambridge, where you wear robes, you absolutely also wear trousers. Uh, But then he went on to say that he doesn't think J.K. Rowling has enough imagination to picture a bunch of school children running around without any trousers on, (laughs) which was a pretty sick burn. Yeah. So I'm going to say that this is one major point in your favor about wizards not wearing trousers underneath their robes. I think that that is definitely fair. I would like a point sound effect, please. What's that? Required book purchases are a structural means of excluding low-income children from high-quality education? Well, follow me to Flourish and Blots, where we chat a little bit about the Harry Potter books as physical objects. Would you like to start? I would. When I pulled this book off my shelf to start reading it, I realized that it started at chapter three because the first chapters are missing. And the fact that I even have the first four pages of chapter three is a miracle because this book is so badly worn and read and reread. 
But what's really stressful for me <laughs> is that I know for a fact that I saved those pages. And I have no idea where they are. I have no idea. So somewhere in some book that I own, there are two full chapters. The very important first two full chapters of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. So when I realized that I was missing those chapters, and actually our tech support was in the process of reading this book at the at the time that I discovered that they were missing. Did he just not read the first two chapters? That is, in fact, correct. He chose to not read the first two chapters. I was so distraught by the that, idea that he would miss those first two chapters. That made me clench my fists in rage. <laughs> Trevor? Hi. How are you doing? We love you. You are... One, you don't listen to this podcast, so we can say anything to you that we want on it. But two, you need to read better. <laughs> when I realized that those two chapters were missing and I was not able to find them, I went to our wonderful independent bookstore here in Edmonton called Audrey's Books and was going to buy a new paperback copy of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. I did, in fact, purchase it. I kept it for about a month, and I could not cope with the fact that it was a, an entirely different book. It's They are entirely different editions. Everything about them was different. I actually kind of wish that I had kept that copy just for the recording of this episode, but you can't keep a book that you're planning to return literally forever and then return it. That's just rude. So let me describe it to you. So the new edition, it was the children's edition that I bought because these ones that I read and cherish and love are the children's edition because I think that the adult editions are questionable at best. And as our friend Rob Zacharias pointed out, have like a weirdly um, like Nazi-ish aesthetic to them, mm -hmm. which is like, yeah. you're trying too hard adult editions. Yeah. The new adult editions are quite tacky, I find. There was for a brief period, a set of Harry Potter books that had a kind of Tolkien-esque look to them. So where the most recent reprints of the Lord of the Rings series uh, are all black with like a colorful circle and then a kind of glossy, shiny uh, silhouette of something in the center of that circle. The Harry Potter ones were similar in that they had a white cover with like a two or three color, but very simplified silhouette-like image on the front. And I really liked those and I thought maybe I could handle having one. Those are gone. They don't exist. I don't know where they are. I don't know why they lasted for such a short time, but they I can't find them anymore. Anyway, the new ones have too much paratextual content in them. And that paratextual content is brand new and I don't like it. It makes me anxious. It has the list of all of the chapters at the beginning, which you will notice that these ones do not. It has a map of Hogwarts, which I'm sure would be very helpful, but I don't want the books to tell me where things are. I want to imagine it for myself and figure it out based on clues. All of which is to say... I couldn't cope. I had to return the book. And so what I did instead is I went to a used bookstore every day <laughs> <laughs> for like two weeks until I managed to acquire a hardcover copy um, of the exact same edition of the book that I am missing the first two chapters of. So I was listening to, I listened to a lot of podcasts. I was listening to an episode of The Flophouse recently, which is a lovely, very popular podcast about bad movies. And they were talking about the adaptation of um, The Golden Compass, mm -hmm. right? The failed adaptation. They were talking about why it had failed as an adaptation. And one of the points that one of the hosts made was that the magic of that 
of those books is that you enter into the world not knowing how incredible it is, Mm. not knowing that there are all of these amazing, unexpected things in it, because the protagonist also doesn't know there are all of these amazing, unexpected things in it. And so you don't find out that there are talking polar bears until the protagonist finds out that there are talking polar bears. And then you're like, what the fuck? This world has bears in it? Mm -hmm. And that's the magic of the experience of moving through this fantasy realm, Mm -hmm. Um, which is why so many great fantasy books are written from the perspective of children or young adults, because Mm -hmm. then you get that sort of fresh-eyed experience of a wonder-filled world. And he was saying that the the adaptation did a really bad job of that because they have like a voiceover at the beginning where they're like, here's this magical world. Look, there are witches and gypsies and also these talking polar bears. Brace yourself. It's going to be wacky. And he was like, that's dumb. You can't tell people Mm -hmm. right at the beginning this world's going to be magical. And that seems to me to be what a table of contents does. Like, don't tell me there's going to be, like, a Hungarian horntail in this book. Right. Like, that's... Don't tell me that there's going to be, like, a Yule Ball in this... Like, Mm you... A table of contents is just a series of spoilers. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. Um, So, I have... This is the first book that I am actually sure that I read this copy of it. <laughs> The first three being like, probably I've never touched these books before. Um, but this is the first one that I know for sure that I got it when it came out um, or shortly thereafter. Um, and that this is the copy that I read. And so this is 2000. I was 16. Um, and this was at that age, the longest book I had ever read. Mm-hmm. Like I had never read a book this big before. Mm-hmm. And I have a very distinct memory of the fact that my mom let me take the day off school so that I could lie in bed and read this book. That is a gift. Like cover to cover in 24 hours. And I can still like... Holding this book again and like lying in my bed and reading this book in the evenings has been this amazing sort of visceral embodied memory of lying in my childhood bed, which was the bed that I was still sleeping in when I was 16 Mm -hmm. and reading this book and like experiencing for the first time the physical sensation of like trying to hold a really heavy book up and read it, (laughs) which is something you are more familiar with as an adult. But Mm -hmm. as a kid, it was like, man, this book's super heavy. Yeah, you have to keep switching positions. Yeah, like the first time you're like, my arms are getting tired holding this book above my head, I guess I'll have to roll over onto my stomach. Mm -hmm. And it's weird, like, where your back starts to get sore because you've been lying in bed for 12 hours. But you're like, no, 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 it's fine. (laughs) I'm just going to keep reading it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, you know, that is my my much shorter but very fond... um, memory affiliated with this book yeah i meant i really meant for mine to be short and then i just started prattling on about all the new editions of harry potter and my feelings about them i'm pretty sure everybody's super interested in our emotional responses to paratexts (laughs) my grandpa always told me never trust a narrator if you can't see where he keeps his brains it's time for the boy who narrated in which we probe the unreliability of harry potter as a narrator So the first and most obvious thing about this book is that it's the first time since the first book that we've seen a chapter written from a perspective that isn't Harry's. Right. Yeah. So we get what I read as a sort of third person omniscient narrative. It's been, Mm -hmm. we're getting a, a sort of narrator's voice that isn't inside Harry's perspective. We saw that in the first book. 
with Dumbledore dropping Harry off. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't inside anybody's head there. We were just sort of seeing things happen. Mm-hmm. And very similarly, the opening chapter of this book, The Riddle House, gives us, we sort of move outside of Harry, Harry's knowledge, Harry's experience, and get this view of, you know, the world outside what Harry knows is going on. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense of why they chose to start this book, they? Whoever they are, whoever, <laughs> whatever mysterious force in their world was responsible for this text. I don't, except that we know that Harry has vague memories of what we encounter in this chapter that he remembers from his dream. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of the first example that we have of Harry's dreams mirroring reality. And while... I don't think it makes any sense that Harry's dream would have included the entire backstory of Little Hangleton (laughs) and like the 50 years before the event that is about to transpire transpires. Harry has super boring dreams. (laughs) They are so thorough. (laughs) They're the most thorough dreams. So my sense is that this opening chapter provides for us as the reader some sufficient backstory in a very haunting eerie way Mm -hmm. while also foreshadowing some of the drama that is to come yeah does that make sense yeah it does i also wonder if so part of why we need the uh that external chapter at the beginning of the first book is because you know he's so young at that point that he cannot possibly be aware of the complexity and the gravity of the Mm. world. And that's like the world that we're seeing right at the beginning of the first book is a world that like until moments ago was still run by the Dark Lord. Yes. Right? Very true. Um, And this is the book where he has returned. Mm -hmm. Right? The second and third book, he's not back. The prophecy in the third book says he will return thanks to his faithful servant coming Mm -hmm. back to him. And now he's back. And so I think it's appropriate that we got outside Harry's head for the first time to see what the world looked like under Voldemort. Mm -hmm. And now that Voldemort is actually physically back, Mm -hmm. this is the second time that we see a world beyond Harry. And it suggests something, that sort of narrative strategy suggests something about how how much the world has gotten beyond his control or his Mm -hmm. conception when the Dark Lord is sort of there. Voldemort. I'm not, I don't keep saying the Dark Lord like I'm too afraid to say his name. Are you a Death Eater? Uh, obviously. There's a lot to be gained from taking a look at this chapter and getting a sense of like, because you get this moment of objectivity, you Mm -hmm. get, again, a sense of the world outside of Harry's perspective, which Mm -hmm. I think is great and really interesting as a reader. But the thing that really struck me in it is a couple of books ago, we were talking about Harry's journey into being an empathetic adult. So let's imagine that there is another narrator who is telling us this story, Mm -hmm. who is the narrator that we get peeks at Mm -hmm. through these objective chapters, these supposedly objective chapters. And I don't want to conflate that person with Rowling because um, we're good Foucauldians and we know that the author is a sort of discursive function, not identical to the lived actual historical person Mm -hmm. um but that person that sort of uh, author function in the book is 
the one who lets us see glimpses of what Harry's not getting, Mm -hmm. right? It's the sort of contrast of the world being drawn for us and the limited perspective through which we're seeing that world that we get a sense of the sort of maturation of Mm -hmm. our narrator, right? By seeing the divides between the world as he sees it and the world as it Mm -hmm. exists. Mm -hmm. And I talked about how how important I thought empathy was Mm -hmm. for seeing what, what Harry's not getting. And so it really struck me as I was reading through this first chapter how this author function's voice gives us this moment of the cruelty of boys. Mm-hmm. That it reminds us that young boys are cruel to people who are different. Yeah. Um, and so it says weeds were not the only things Frank had to contend with either. Boys from the village made a habit of throwing stones through the windows of the Riddle House. They rode their bicycles over the lawns Frank worked so hard to keep smooth. Once or twice they broke into the old house for a dare. They knew that old Frank was devoted to the house and grounds, and it amused them to see him limping across the garden, brandishing his stick and yelling croakily at them. It broke my fucking heart. And I think one of the reasons why it broke my heart so much is that I am now more in the position of that adult narrator Mm -hmm. who understands how poignant the cruelty of children towards an elderly person can be. Like, old people make kids really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And as an adult, I think you can sort of look backwards towards childhood and forwards towards old age and get a sense of, like how poignant that that lack of generosity is Mm -hmm. it i found that scene so painful yeah so painful that i put a sticky note on it i would like to tack on one other thing that occurred to me while you were discussing this idea of the cruelty of boys so this is our first foray into puberty with these characters and i just want to point out that at the end of this chapter the riddle house where we are brought from the riddle house into harry's bedroom with all of the uh, rich omnipresence of puberty and puberty-inspired feelings that happen in this book, I think it's really significant that this chapter ends with the sentence, 200 miles away, the boy called Harry Potter woke with a start. Harry Potter is not yet a young man, as he will be in the later books. This omniscient narrator is reminding us that he is still a boy. So all of these things that are happening to him in this book are still happening to Harry Potter, the boy. This is really Harry's last book as a boy. Mm -hmm. After this, after he sees Cedric Diggory die, in many ways, that childhood is over. Mm -hmm. Not just because Voldemort returns, but also because of childhood just being done. It's all just like boobs and death from here on in that's what adult life looks like and obviously we'll talk about this when we talk about the next book but as i was i was chatting with my delightful new friends scott and jess we were talking about harry in the fifth book and how he is all of a sudden a teenager in the fifth book Mm -hmm. and so this is really the last book where we see him as not a not a girl not yet a woman (laughs) so the other uh really interesting thing in this first half of the book that we have, we will be talking about in this episode, is the fact that the book suddenly seems to have gotten a little bit meta about mm. the problem of um, Harry as a protagonist and mm. more largely about the problem of representation. There's a couple of moments that we've encountered so far that really 
make you aware as a reader of the fact that you are reading something that is a representation, mm-hmm. right? And so I was just teaching a class on metatheatricality, but in general, we we had a discussion of what meta means. And we were talking about in theater, how it involves the breaking of the fourth wall Mm -hmm. and that moment where you suddenly see that the actors on the stage who you've all entered into a contract with to pretend that they are real people, then turn and address you as an audience and you suddenly go like, oh my God, you broke that contract with Mm -hmm. me. And there are a couple of moments in this book that get very close to breaking the contract where we're all going to pretend that the thing that we're reading is about a real world, not about a book. Mm -hmm. And the first one, which blew my mind, was when Harry's talking to Hagrid about the fact that his name has been unexpectedly, mysteriously selected out of the Goblet of Fire. And Hagrid says, everything seems to happen to you, doesn't it? And I... I sort of paused and I went, did Hagrid just comment on the fact that Harry is the protagonist of these books? Like, that comment has no function other than to remind us as readers that it's kind of a little unlikely in the real world that every interesting thing at Hogwarts would happen all to the same character. Mm -hmm. And that that's just a function of how a narrative circulating around a protagonist needs to work is that it needs to somehow involve every interesting event befalling one human being. And that from the perspective of that human being, that's like really overwhelming. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things when people complain about a series of books like Harry Potter, where they say things like, it's just, it's just so unrealistic that all of these things would happen to a single character. And I want to be like, Unlike the dragons, though, like you're you're willing to suspend disbelief for the fact that there's a fucking school of witchcraft and wizardry. But the fact that everything befalls a single character is just like, that's the line for you. And so I really like this line because it's kind of a little shout out to the people who have sort of forgotten to suspend disbelief for a while. And it's like, no, no. No, no, no. Just a reminder. This is all still make-believe. You just go right on ahead and keep suspending that disbelief. It also reminds me of um, the inverse of that. Say when people critique, this happens a lot when people critique Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. right? The the TV series and say like, well, this, this show's a bit rapier than it needs to be. Maybe we don't need quite this much rape. And then people respond, well, that's like what it was like. And you're like, <laughs> what it was like when? When exactly? When there were dragons and also a lot of rape? Like, what historical period was that? Could you remind me? Like, why are you so bad at understanding how fantasy works? (laughs) If there's a dragon, it means nothing is real. But, like, dragons are also not the only thing that is like not real about Game of Thrones. We also have the the faceless men, right? We have these people who literally shapeshift into other human beings. Yeah. And we have a main character who is learning how to be one. It this is this is not anyway. It's not real. Yeah. It's not real. So when people are like uh, it doesn't make sense that all this would happen to Harry. You're like, well, it also doesn't make sense that there's a giant squid in the lake beside their school and it eats toast. <laughs> like, this is crazy bananas nonsense. Let's all just, like, get on board or get out. Mm-hmm. Agreed. 
So super meta, super refreshing, yeah. and delightful. Yeah. But there's another meta moment that you pointed out um, mm. that I think it's a very different kind of meta moment, but it's doing a similar thing in the fact that it's, it provides you with a space to think through the fact that what you are reading is a representation and dealing with sort of the difficulty of that. Yeah, totally. So after all of the chaos that happens at the Quidditch World Cup with uh, the Death Eaters showing up in the Dark Mark, we have this character, Rita Skeeter, who we haven't actually met yet. Um, We only hear about her in the chapter Mayhem at the Ministry. So this is Mr. Weasley quoting from the article that he's reading. A ministry official emerged sometime after the appearance of the Dark Mark, alleging that nobody had been hurt, but refusing to give any more information. Whether the statement will be enough to quash the rumors that several bodies were removed from the woods an hour later remains to be seen. Oh, really, said Mr. Weasley in exasperation, handing the paper to Percy. Nobody was hurt. What was I supposed to say? Rumors that several bodies were removed from the woods. Well, there certainly will be rumors now she's printed that. So I was really excited when I read this because it made me realize how important this book is in teaching young readers that they need to question their news sources. So much as we've discussed with Hermione, that she relies a little too heavily on print for as a source of authority. I think that this book reminds us that even things like the news media can't always be trusted to be objective and factual. It reminds us that everything is narrative. So not just this book that we're reading, which is a fantasy or detective fiction or a combination of the two, but also that everything is narrative. Mm -hmm. Everything is a story. Mm-hmm. And that really gets driven home for us in the later scene when we actually get to encounter Rita Skeeter oh, as yeah. a character and we see this magical enchanted quill thing that she has. What is it called? Her quick quotes quill. Quick quotes quill. Like it is a representation machine. That's what it is. It is um, like a piece of sort of magical technology that transforms the world into a particular genre of representation Mm -hmm. so that she gives her name to the quill and it says the green quill had started to scribble skidding across the parchment attractive blonde rita skeeter 43 whose savage quill has punctured many inflated reputations (laughs) and we get this moment of being reminded in a very material way that representations are unreliable yes and that we cannot take for granted that something that is written down on a piece of paper matches reality as you perceive it in any way mm-hmm. exactly 100 percent. hooray for critical thinking whatever that might mean is is this the class where we learn about human sexuality Either way, it's time for potions class, our discussion of pedagogy at Hogwarts. Okay, so it has been brought to our attention by a number of our listeners via Twitter um, that this is an issue that we need to address, um, sex ed at Hogwarts. I have very strong feelings about this, uh, which are in contrast to the feelings um, and sentiments that Hannah expressed during the minisode. Um, <gasps> I know. I'm sorry. I just I want to talk about this because I have actually tweeted about this in the past. Um, 
And I feel like we need to have a bigger conversation about this, especially in light of all of the shenanigans that are happening in Ontario right now with people reacting so foolishly and violently against the new sex ed curriculum for educational institutions. Um, And I just think that sex ed is something that is extremely important to talk about. In relation to Harry Potter, we don't actually get any direct examples of sex ed, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this is one of those instances where you have to read the gaps. And we at no point in the Harry Potter books encounter outbreaks of chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, HPV, herpes, HIV, any STI. Like we don't even come across outbreaks of scabies or hep B or mono, for goodness sakes. And I don't think that... It is just because Madame Pomfrey is so good at her job, because we have to remember she's the only school nurse, right? And if Hogwarts has hundreds of students, it is extremely unlikely that if they were all having rampant, uneducated, unprotected sexual encounters, that she would be able to quash the outbreak of syphilis or whatever that would surely come about. I also want to point out that there are no unplanned pregnancies in this book either, right? And Mm -hmm. so it could be that because it's from Harry's perspective, and Harry is still a boy, and Harry is not himself having fun, sexy times yet, um, it could be that these things are happening and Harry is just unaware of them. But again, there's only one Madame Pomfrey. So I think... What is actually happening in these books is that there is a component of sex education that has been censored from the books that we encounter as readers because they are marketed for children. And I don't know how to finish that sentence. So I'm going to take the exact opposite perspective. My perspective is that I read the absence of any signs of STIs, alongside any sign of sexual education, alongside any side of accidental pregnancies, not as a sort of subtle indication to us as readers that in the wider world of Hogwarts, students are being adequately educated, but as a sign of a sort of representational elision. That is that this book is leaving human sexuality out entirely. Like that those are not things in the wizarding world, that it has presented a view of human coming of age that is cleaned up and tidied up and that the absence of a human sexuality class is a sort of result of the fact that this is a world in which SCIs are just not an issue, in which we don't have a trans character, we don't have a queer character, um, so we, alternative sexualities aren't an issue, we don't have young sexually active characters, so protection to avoid pregnancy is not an issue. I read this as exactly the opposite, as a sort of potentially dangerous misrepresentation of young adult sexuality. And again, I'd say sort of coming back to like their child readers or the young readers, I think that might be why. But maybe like maybe you're just a more generous reader than I am because I don't see any reason to believe in the the radically sex positive world that you were envisioning at Hogwarts. I fully agree with you that the lack of queer and trans characters is deeply problematic and suggests that they just don't exist in this world, which is really disturbing. 
what does exist in this world, though, and especially we see this in this book and in the later books, are these very coded but nevertheless present representations of sexual desire and feelings, right? So we do encounter characters, especially Harry, because we're seeing this through Harry's perspective, experiencing sexual desire and the confusion that accompanies sexual desire. So I don't totally agree that sexuality entirely is written out of these books, but I do think that it is cleaned up in a way that makes these books non-threatening to normative families. And that is partly what informs my desire to read a more queertopian <laughs> world of Hogwarts in these books. Did you just coin the phrase queertopian? I guarantee I didn't coin it. Somebody smarter than me must have come up with that term before me. I really love it. I really love it. This is a really complicated topic, mm-hmm. and I would be really interested in hearing what our listeners have to say about it, because this is something that is not particular to this book, but it's mm-hmm. this sort of larger concern, a larger concern across all of the books. And I would be really yeah. interested to hear what listeners' sense of it is, since our readings are basically opposites. Mm-hmm. So at this point, listeners, I want to remind you that there will be a second part to our discussion of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And so if it seems like we are leaving some important stuff out, that's because we want to make sure we still have some content for the second half. So there's conversations we want to have um, in terms of pedagogy about Durmstrang and Beaubaton. And we definitely need to talk about Moody, but I think it makes more sense to talk about Moody once we have gotten to the point in the text where the revelation about Moody has happened. Mm-hmm. So we're going to move on to talking briefly about Snape and Trelawney. So Hannah, you pointed out that Snape is just as cruel and horrible in this book as he is in the in the previous books. Yeah, there's a whole part about how he's going to poison one of his students to see how good they are at antidotes, which is like, again, not super great pedagogy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I really wanted to bring up what happens when Malfoy and Harry are trying to jinx or hex each other and Malfoy's jinx hits Hermione in the face and causes her teeth, which are we know from the books are already um, quite pronounced. It causes them to just grow and not stop. And Ron and Harry point this out to Snape and say, look what Malfoy did to Hermione. And Snape, in a very cold tone, says to Hermione, I see no difference. Yeah, it's the first time he's overtly commented on a student's appearance, which is a special kind of inappropriate. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so to suggest that Hermione suddenly having two front teeth that make her look like a mutant beaver is no different from the way that she normally looks is a particular kind of abuse. I would even say that to comment on a young pubescent female student's physical appearance in such a deliberately cruel way really verges on sexual harassment. Oh, totally. Yeah. So Snape has hit a whole new level of bullshit in this book, (laughs) particularly with that one moment. Okay. So let's also, so now let's also briefly talk about Trelawney. This is the first class of this school year when Harry and Ron set off to the North Tower. Um, And the book tells us that a silver stepladder led to a circular trapdoor in the ceiling and the room where Professor Trelawney lived. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and I, I got, I got so excited that I underlined the word "lived" because I got really excited about the notion that Trelawney would live in that same incense-filled, claustrophobic tower. This might be a really exceptionally cute example of Harry's narrative perspective because Harry is perhaps under the impression that she does in fact live in the same room where she teaches. Yeah. <laughs> I love that image of Harry just imagining that all of his professors just live in their classrooms. <laughs> Which is like kind of what you think when you're a kid. Like you mm-hmm. just don't imagine your teachers as having homes. Totally. And yeah. The way that the book entirely just ignores the question of where any of the professors sleep really suggests to us that that Harry's not aware of this. So that his thinking that Trelawney also lives in that attic might just be a moment of him being like, yeah, 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 I've never seen her outside of this attic. She probably lives here. So the other important thing to note about Trelawney here is, as you may recall in the last book, Marcel did a better job of close reading <laughs> Trelawney as a character than I did, and I was real, real mad about it. And she has once again in this book discovered ways in which Trelawney's predictions, which are made so casually and so sort of hysterically that you as a reader assume that she's just making shit up, in fact, once again, turn out to be uncannily accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so again, this is the first class and uh, Trelawney is sort of moving about the room saying ridiculous things to students, making them feel uncomfortable or thrilled, depending on how they feel about being in that class. And she says to Harry, I regret to say that your worries are not baseless. I see difficult times ahead for you. Alas, most difficult. I fear the thing you dread will indeed come to pass and perhaps sooner than you think. And and this is exactly true. It is 100% true. Yeah, she, she nailed it. I mean, maybe it's just easy to walk around Hogwarts being like something tragic is definitely going to happen because <laughs> um, this is a school where tragedy is constantly befalling its students. Yes. But I mean, it is very specifically Harry with the circulating anxiety and her saying it's going to happen and then it happens. Mm-hmm. Kind of feel like camping, but want it to be, you know, subversive. Well, pack your bags and join us in the Forbidden Forest to chat about race, class, bodies, and otherness in the wizarding world. And we've decided uh, to leave the discussion of house elves aside for this episode and focus on it next time, particularly because we have a special and very authoritative guest who will be joining us. Mm -hmm. Um, And so instead, we're going to focus on some other important issues. And we're going to start by coming back to um, something that we really paid attention to in our reading of the third book, and that is the problem of the representation of fatness. Mm-hmm. Now, we had one listener comment um, on our website that the obsession with fatness through Harry's perspective should not be mistaken for sort of Rowling's own complicity in a larger form of social cruelty, but rather that, again, Harry is a young narrator and that We can't mistake the way that he uses perhaps cruel language and cruel images as a way of expressing his hatred Mm -hmm. for a cousin that is really cruel to him. Mm -hmm. I 100% agree with that for this book. Mm -hmm. I remain on the fence about whether or not I agree with that for the previous books. But this one, this book in particular gives us so much of Harry's 
fat shaming and cruelty towards his cousin that it becomes impossible to ignore it. And I, I mean, of course, if you read through it and you miss it, that is because we live in a culture that does so much fat shaming already that I think it is quite easy to miss um, for lots of people. Nevertheless, if you are paying attention to the way that fatness functions in this book, you will absolutely notice how extreme and cruel and troubling it is, but also the way that this book reminds us that these types of discourses about fatness are a form of bullying. So let's talk about Dudley's diet and how the Weasley twins tease Dudley first. Mm -hmm. And then I want to talk about the thing that I noticed uh, a little bit later on in the book that made me reconsider what it is that this that this listener had pointed out to us. Hmm. Yeah, so there's there's two different moments um, in the initial part of the book where we see Harry at home with Dudley um, that really struck me. The first was that um, Dudley has now in this book been put on a diet, right? And diets are, of course, our most socially sanctioned form of body policing. Mm -hmm. That is that if your body is in any way unruly or doesn't sort of fit into the, the shape or appearance that a body is supposed to have, then you're supposed to punish that body until it starts looking the way that it ought to. And so we see Dudley's body is an unruly body, and so it needs to be sort of restricted and starved and managed and policed in all of these ways. But what's really interesting about this is that Harry's body, being a correct body, does not need to be policed. Mm -hmm. And so while Harry is being sort of starved by his aunt, who's making him keep the same diet, he's going upstairs to his bedroom and eating birthday cake for every meal, which is like you just, you would just get diabetes. But Harry's body being a good body does not need food policing of any sort. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's a distinction that's made very, very clearly for us. I'm also so angry about the <laughs> diet itself. I'm so angry that for Yeah, I'm so angry that for breakfast all you get is a quarter of a grapefruit. Like if you are genuinely concerned about losing weight, there are so many wonderful, filling, nutritious foods that you can eat that aren't starving you. I'm so angry that this diet is functionally starving Dudley. Again, if we're thinking back to that, like, we don't trust Harry's perspective at this point, and so it's hyperbole, that it's just Dudley is not getting as much to eat as he wants, and it's so much less than he wants to consume that it might as well be a quarter mm-hmm. of a grapefruit, which is, yeah. I think, it's got to be the way that we're supposed to read this, because there is no diet in the entire world that suggests that you eat a quarter of a grapefruit for breakfast. But given the whole grapefruit, like, you can eat a whole grapefruit. There yeah. are, what, like, three calories in a grapefruit? Given the whole grapefruit, for the love of God, you need roughage and vitamin C. And then, of course, we have that following scene where we know that Dudley is being starved, that he's oh. dead desperate for like adequate caloric intake because it's not actually how weight loss works people i mean in fact studies show that that weight loss through dieting doesn't work so that's all nonsense but it definitely definitely doesn't work through eating a quarter of a grapefruit and so uh dudley's starving he hasn't had the access to birthday cake that harry has had and yet it's hilarious that when presented with an additional source of calories he attempts to get it that is like the funniest thing in the world it's not funny that harry went upstairs and ate cake for breakfast but it is funny that 
Dudley wants a piece of toffee. And the Weasley twins deliberately use their knowledge of the fact that Harry's cousin is fat and will probably want to eat some food to, like, torture him. Yeah, and this also suggests to us that when Harry describes Dudley to them, he focuses on Dudley's fatness. He, like, uses Dudley's body as a way of pointing out to the twins how stupid and useless and pathetic and mean and awful Dudley is, which I do think fits into that listener's argument, right? I think this is really good evidence for that. But it's it's just such a cruel thing. And the example from this chapter that disturbs me the most is once... Vernon Dursley gives Harry permission to go to the Quidditch World Cup after they've had that horrible breakfast of a quarter of a piece of grapefruit. Harry runs into Dudley in the hall and says in his glee to Dudley, that was an italicized excellent breakfast, wasn't it? I feel really full, don't you? And then he goes upstairs to his bedroom where he has fucking cake and treats. The note that I wrote to myself is, this is disgusting. And Harry's disdain for his muggle family in this moment isn't much different from the Malfoy's disdain for muggles. And that makes me feel very complicated about Harry in this chapter. You know what? That actually extends to a larger suspicion that I've been developing as I've been reading this book, which is that the book is doing some very sort of deliberate, showing us how Harry does in fact have latent in him the potential to be like Voldemort. Oh, totally. Um, We already know that he could have been in Slytherin. We Mm -hmm. already know that he has this line of ambition, this line of ruthlessness that runs through him. And in these moments of cruelty, we do in fact see a very sort of Malfoy-esque disdain for people Mm -hmm. who are different from him. Mm -hmm. And this ties into a question that uh, Sylvie, who you will recognize from our last two episodes, um, sent to Marcel and me about the problem of wealth, Harry's wealth in particular, um, which is in a previous episode, I had claimed that the form of whiteness that Harry embodies is a sort of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of Great Gatsby-esque whiteness. And Sylvie pointed out that Harry is in fact incredibly wealthy and that he inherited his wealth from his parents so that he's he's actually more like the Malfoys than not in the sense he Mm -hmm. comes from a pure-blood family, he's very wealthy, he could be aligning himself with them. And so I was thinking through, there was a moment that I had tagged just because it struck me as being sort of interesting as I was reading. And that's the moment where Harry's packing to go to the burrow. And it says, Harry's trunk was packed with his school things and all his most prized possessions. The invisibility cloak he had inherited from his father, the broomstick he had got from Sirius, the enchanted map of Hogwarts he had been given by Fred and George Weasley last year. So Harry's most prized possessions are incredibly valuable magical objects that he has been given by older men, Mm -hmm. right? Harry is the heir to everything. Mm -hmm. And who is the other major heir in the series? It's Voldemort, who is Mm -hmm. the heir of Slytherin. So Harry is being really paralleled to Voldemort here. They're both raised poor and illegitimate, but they're both secretly the rightful heirs to huge amounts of wealth and power. And so the protagonist that we are encountering this world 
through is not somebody who's distance from power. It's somebody who's right in the very center of it mm-hmm. and who always has the option of using that power to be cruel and deceitful and manipulative when he wants to. And sometimes he does. Yes. And so that becomes a really interesting journey as we see somebody in a position of power and privilege make the decision to not use it to hurt the people around him, Mm -hmm. which is why his journey through sort of discovering empathy and kindness is so, so important. Mm -hmm. Essentially what this book or the series of books, what it comes down to is this idea of using your privilege for good rather than evil rather than say what, you know, I would prefer in my heart of hearts, which would be a radical dismantling of privilege and burning it all to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why we were also entranced by the retelling of the Harry Potter series from the perspective of Hermione. Yes. Right? Like that would be a very different kind of story. Mm -hmm. Um, But instead, this is a story being told right from the center of power. Yes. um, Not from its outskirts. I'm always more engaged by a story being told from the margins of power. But, you know, there's something to say from watching how power operates on a subject and getting a sort of inside view of that. And one of the ways that this book really starts to show us that more explicitly is how very overtly Harry's money and power and fame are becoming a burden to him Mm -hmm. in this book, right? His money is embarrassing because the people he loves do not have as much money and he knows that while he would like to share it with them it would be too embarrassing for them to Mm -hmm. you know receive that generosity and similarly you know when his name is drawn from the goblet of fire ron turns against him because it's you know it's too much to have harry always be the person to whom everything happens right it's too much for Ron to be so close to somebody who has all of the possible forms of privilege all of the time. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm not particularly sympathetic as a rule to wealthy white men. (laughs) But I think it's really important to remember that systems of oppression oppress everybody. Mm -hmm. That just sometimes it feels better to be inside them. Yes. Right? Exactly. So the patriarchy sucks for men too. It just sucks in ways that are less overtly violent than for women. Mm -hmm. And it sucks in ways that still allows some men to benefit from the system of patriarchy, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I think while we're sort of um, hanging out around the topic of money and Harry and this idea of embarrassment, I think it's really worth pointing out that after Harry has won the Triwizard Tournament, he has that... Hush. After he has won the Triwizard Tournament and he has that big bag of gold that he doesn't want, it's that big bag of gold becomes like a perfect symbol of that burdensome wealth and fame and power what does he do with it? But the only appropriate thing in this world that you can do with that money, he invests it in an enterprise. (laughs) He gives it to the Weasley twins as a kind of investment, because now that Voldemort is back, we're Mm -hmm. all going to need some chuckles. Jew watch. So there are a lot of goblins in this book, and there are goblins acting real fucking semitically um and there are no jews so i'm only going to point out the first example and i will save the second example for jew watch part two so the first example 
Oh man, when I read this. Oh my God, what page is it on? It's on page 113. Dear listeners, pull out your books. We'll read along together. <clears throat> so this is uh, before the dark mark appears in the sky, but after chaos is happening at the Quidditch World Cup because of the Death Eaters. And Ron and Harry and Hermione have been separated from Fred, George, and Ginny, um, and they're running through the woods. I'm just going to read this paragraph to you. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you didn't notice that, you (laughs) anti-Semite. They followed the dark path deeper into the wood, still keeping an eye out for Fred, George, and Ginny. They passed a group of goblins who were cackling over a sack of gold they had undoubtedly won betting on the match, and who seemed quite unperturbed by the trouble on the campsite. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, what? What just happened? They passed a group of goblins who were cackling over a sack of gold that they had won betting on the match, and who were unperturbed by the Death Eaters and chaos that was affecting the wizards around them. Did they win it betting on a match, or did they win it by accruing interest through <laughs> lending to Gentiles? I believe we call that usury. <laughs> Again, there's no point in just attributing this to rolling because of the way that the way that authorship works and the way that rolling is but one person in an entire team of people. But what makes these representations of goblins so troublingly Semitic is that this feeds into the long history of Jews and particularly Orthodox Jews who, because of religious practices and traditions and customs, live in many ways sort of in isolated communities, often within um, Gentile communities, but they don't quite participate in those Gentile communities and historically have often been accused of not really being members of that community or communities. So for example, when we think of citizenship and early forms of citizenship, uh, European Jews weren't considered to be real citizens because they did not participate in the same sorts of civil activities that, say, non-Semitic citizens would have participated in. And we really see this in this single paragraph where the goblins don't give a fuck about the fact that there are Death Eaters torturing muggles or that there are Death Eaters who are blowing up tents with fire or whatever because it doesn't affect them because they are just on the outskirts. They're willing to profit from wizards, but they are in no way whatsoever interested in participating in the wizarding world. And I am so uncomfortable with this. So uncomfortable that you died. I died. Now I'm a ghost. Now she's a ghost. Speaking of Death Eaters, we need to talk about the Death Eaters at the Quidditch World Cup. Marcel and I arrived with very similar points. Um, I mean, we'd use different metaphors, but what struck us both is that the scene in which um, the Death Eaters, you know, given the fall of darkness and a few drinks in their system and the anonymity of a mask, immediately start enacting this form of torture uh, and public shaming abuse to the muggles most nearby. What's so striking and disturbing about the violence in this scene is that they don't know Voldemort's coming back. This is not a sort of the banality of evil via Hannah Arendt, the way that sort of Nazis after the fall of the regime claimed that they were just doing what they'd been told. Mm -hmm. This is not 
blaming a single evil villain a la Lord of the Rings. This is the kind of evil and cruelty that saturates our world on an everyday basis, Mm -hmm. which is get a bunch of people drunk and give them some anonymity and they're going to find a vulnerable population and they're going to do something really terrible to them. This is the KKK. This is what it is like being a young woman walking home on a Saturday night past drunk guys spilling out of a bar. Mm -hmm. This is what it is like to be any form of vulnerable minority around some drunk people who know they can do something terrible to you. Or what it's like being a person of color when you're surrounded by white cops. This is the exact same thing, right? Cops maybe not, maybe are sober, but are still 100% empowered by the same anonymity that the uniform provides them and the same like drunk on power. Yeah. I mean, this is news that has just come out very recently. So this is going to date our episode but who gives a fuck this is white cops showing up at some black kids pool party Mm -hmm. um and harassing them and abusing them while they cry for their parents because when you have power you can do that yeah right and because it's not the single charismatic evil leader who causes this kind of viciousness it's human nature right that people given power and some wall behind which to hide themselves from the actual consequences of the way that they act are going to do these kinds of things. Absolutely. So one of the things that really haunted me on this reading of the book was particularly the way that there seems to be an implicit connection between this type of anti-muggle violence and gender-based and sexual violence. And we really see this come through mm-hmm. when Harry, Ron, and Hermione bump into Malfoy and his and his team of douches in the forest. The first thing that we see happen is the Death Eaters themselves who have levitated the muggle family who runs the campground, right? And Harry doesn't quite realize what he's seeing until he realizes that the that the figures floating head are the muggles and in particular what the death eaters have done is they've turned mrs roberts upside down uh, so that her nightdress falls to reveal her underwear and it specifically says in the book she struggled to cover herself up as the crowd below her screeched and hooted with glee so this is in fact sexual assault and I think it's actually really significant that we are seeing this because this is very clearly tying this violence to the relationship to power. Um, But then what, what happens from that point on is we start to get connections with Hermione as well, because Hermione, who is muggle-born, is also a girl, right? So when they run into Malfoy in the woods... And Malfoy threatens Hermione. Essentially, what Malfoy is doing is he is, without directly saying it, threatening Hermione with rape. A little bit later on, so when they're still going and Hermione gets distracted by the plight of house elves and she's really upset by that, there's a moment when, or when Harry realizes, he sees Ron glance edgily at Hermione. And then Harry thinks perhaps there was truth in what Malfoy had said. Perhaps Hermione was in more danger than they were. Yeah. I mean, these books are, they're still books aimed at children and they're still 
articulating their arguments through a fantasy realm. But nonetheless, this book is making a very sort of potent argument about how violence works. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you. Okay. And that is, I was just thinking as we were talking, that the muggles become in the scene the sort of objects of these forms of systemic violence. And we've already compared them explicitly to the kinds of racial violence happening in the U.S. right now, but also always And I wonder if there's something problematic about displacing histories of racialized violence onto white subjects Mm -hmm. by switching the dynamic of violence and oppression from being about race or explicitly about gender to being about muggle versus wizard. So that now the, the, the victims of this violence become Victims who we can identify with, they're more, as as Judith Butler would say, they're more grievable subjects Mm -hmm. because they're recognizable subjects who we already see as worthy of respect, Mm -hmm. whereas were the muggles in the story black, this would read very differently. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I totally totally see what you're saying. I absolutely think that this is a problematic way of making accessible to a white readership these forms of precarity and violence that um, that racialized people experience in a fundamentally different way. One of these days, we're going to burn the whole fucking world to the ground. Until then, it's time for Granger Danger. So we're going to keep this segment relatively short because we have had we have just so much to say about all of the things. So we'll have lots more to say about Hermione in the second episode, which will probably end up being four hours long. But one of the things that is definitely worth pointing out right away is that Hermione's relationship to house elves, her politicization that comes from the recognition that house elves are enslaved, is teaching her how to question the authority of books. And so this is a very exciting moment for us as readers, um, because we see Hermione really saying fuck you to the authority that comes with the printed word yeah yeah so the moment that marcel is picking up on here is part of um the larger conversation we'll have in the next episode about the problem of house elves in this Mm -hmm. book which is such a big deal but in particular we just see this first moment where hermione really starts to become a critical resistant reader and that's because she's becoming a politicized subject and that is that she's talking about hogwarts a history and she's using it as a reference point as she does so constantly in the books but rather than nodding towards it as this sort of perfectly reliable authoritative text she points out for the first time that it's in fact unreliable, biased, and selective. And she says that it glosses over the nastier aspects of the school's history. That is, that it never makes reference to the forms of unpaid labor upon which the school functions. Mm -hmm. We also see her starting to become resistant sometimes to professors, right? So there's that moment where Moody is teaching them about the three unforgivable curses, um, and he's using Cruciatus? Cruciatus. Um, So he's using Cruciatus on a spider and Hermione tells him to stop, um, which we really don't see many examples of Hermione talking back to a professor like that. Mm -hmm. But she's doing it because she's observing the reaction that Neville is having to this. And she so invested in the sort of active compassion to her classmate that she's willing to resist the authority of her professor and ask him to stop teaching a lesson. 
Yeah. Similarly, in another moment of excellent Hermione-esque attentiveness to detail, she's the one who insists that George and Fred will not be able to cross the age line by taking a simple aging potion because she's like, I'm pretty sure that Dumbledore is real, real good at being a wizard and he'll have figured this out already. Like, he's not an idiot. He's the most famous living wizard. He probably thought of that. And it's so satisfying. Everybody's just ignoring her and shutting her down and treating her like this real lame party pooper. And when they cross that age line and get flung 10 feet in the air, I was just like, fuck yeah, you guys are idiots. Listen to Hermione. (laughs) We will have more to talk about um, on the subject of Ranger Danger when we get into Hermione's beautiful, transcendent, perfectly right championing of the house elf cause. Oh man, I just realized we're gonna have to talk about white feminism. Next episode. Next episode is going to be 14 hours long. At last, dear listeners, it's time for final revisions in which we take turns asking each other questions. It's my turn to ask this week and Hannah's turn to answer. Given how much time we've already spent talking about serious things, I'm only going to ask you the funny questions that I have. So the first question that I have pertains to what Percy says on page 135 about needing to put out fires all over the place. So Percy, as we know, works for the Ministry of Magic. And after the Quidditch World Cup, apparently the Ministry of Magic is receiving all kinds of uh, hate mail. And one of the things that Percy says is, it's been an absolute uproar. I've been putting out fires all week. People keep sending howlers. And of course, if you don't open a howler straight away, it explodes. Scorch marks all over my desk and my best quill reduced to cinders. Percy says something equally clever in book two when he encourages Harry to start thinking early about the future. And as a result, he recommends that Harry take divination. So my question for you is, is Percy an unappreciated comedic genius? Or is this an example of like language having power beyond the intentions of the speaker? I think Percy's an unappreciated comic genius. I think we look at the family he's been raised in, right? That he's surrounded by these brothers who are very funny. And yet the things that Percy enjoys are not things that they appreciate. And Percy's used to being the butt of the joke. Um, And so Percy's sort of, I think, not necessarily as put off by being the butt of the joke at this point, right? He's sort of used to it. He's sort of willing to go with it. And similarly, he doesn't need people to get his jokes. He doesn't need people to laugh at them. He takes his sort of private pleasures in his little jokes. Mm -hmm. So these are just Percy having these moments of being like very clever and then just being secretly, privately delighted by himself. That's great. I like that. I like that a lot. My next question uh, pertains to the weighing of the wands. And my question is, are wands cocks? (laughs) So they need to be weighed. I don't think so. I don't think wands are cocks. What are wands? What is the equivalent of wands? Because the way that Ollivander is just like really not impressed with anybody's wand that he did not make himself. It's like... I guess that one's okay, but it's, like, not a very good wand. Let me read it to you. 
Ah, now, this is one of mine, isn't it? said Mr. Ollivander, with much more enthusiasm, as Cedric handed over his wand. Yes, I remember it well, containing a single hair from the tail of a particularly fine male unicorn. Must have been seventeen hands. Nearly gored me with his horn after I plucked his tail. Twelve and a quarter inches. Ash. Pleasantly springy. It's in fine condition. You treat it regularly? Polished it last night, said Cedric, grinning. I take it back, Wands or Cox. <laughs> Obviously. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> and Harry's so embarrassed because he's covered in fingerprints. And he tries to surreptitiously polish it, but it starts sparking. And then Fleur gives him this look that's like, please don't polish your wand in public, you child. <laughs> Thank you, our most beloved listenership, for joining us for episode seven of which, please, can you believe we're already at episode seven? You can find the rest of our episodes on our website, ohwhichplease.ca, or on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to drop us a rating or a review. It makes our hearts happy. Speaking of things that make us happy, you can tweet at us, at ohwhichplease, or visit our Tumblr, ohwhichplease.tumblr.com, ably curated by another person who makes us happy, Jason Purcell. As always, special thanks to the robot of our hearts, Trevor Chow Fraser. Hi, how are you doing? The day that we are recording, it is (gasps) Trevor's birthday. Happy birthday, Trevor. And thanks to all of those who have tweeted at us. It's my turn to read the list. Oh, bless you. Physics Katie, Meg K. Upstate, K. Malosh 2, S.C. Huggins, Neil Politan, Matt Domville, Karina Soros, Kristen Morin, Ryan Redshirt, Savannah Goyette, Daniloth, Kathy Van Orton, Surinoth, DeBeckel, Debbie Kinsey, Pewter Wolf 13, Ellen Ora, Khaleesi's and Amazon's podcast, Katarina Mary, Terry Lee McGarry, Julia Blakey, Kay Trims, Hedwig8593, The Kalesa, J. Kate B., The Dutch Wife, Cat Lady Pizza, Vic Jones, Andrew Brett's 001, Short to the Point, Dancy M., Proletarian Arts, V. Pillar, into Cisa, Bookish Spoonie, I Will Leave Now, Great Dane Yo-Yo, Emily Hoven, and one of these days there's going to be too many of you to name and this might have been the day. Yeah, for sure. It's- yeah, you're getting, <laughs> getting to be a very long list and we love you so much. On our next episode, we'll discuss the second half of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire with special guest Proletarian Arts, a.k.a. Andrea Hasenbank, preeminent scholar of labor history, who will help us to hash out the complicated topic of house elves. But until then... Later, witches! Witches!